Chapters 57 and 58 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 57. He had hardly parted from Pryor before there occurred another incident which strengthened his discontent. He had fallen, as I have shown, among a gang of spiritual thieves or coiners, who passed the basest metal upon him without his finding it out. So childish and inexperienced was he in the ways of anything but those back eddies of the world, schools and universities. Among the bad threepenny pieces which had been passed off upon him, and which he kept for small hourly disbursement, was a remark that poor people were much nicer than the richer and better educated. Ernest now said that he always travelled third class, not because it was cheaper, but because the people whom he met in third-class carriages were so much pleasanter and better behaved. As for the young men who attended Ernest's evening classes, they were pronounced to be more intelligent and better ordered generally than the average run of Oxford and Cambridge men. Our foolish young friend, having heard Pryor talk to this effect, caught up all he said and reproduced it more suo. One evening, however, about this time, whom should he see coming along a small street not far from his own, but of all persons in the world, Townley, looking as full of life and good spirits as ever, and if possible even handsomer than he had been at Cambridge. Much as Ernest liked him, he found himself shrinking from speaking to him, and was endeavouring to pass him without doing so, when Townley saw him and stopped him at once, being pleased to see an old Cambridge face. He seemed for the moment a little confused at being seen in such a neighbourhood, but recovered himself so soon that Ernest had hardly noticed it, and then plunged into a few kindly remarks about old times. Ernest felt that he quailed as he saw Townley's eyes wander to his white necktie, and saw that he was being reckoned up, and rather disapprovingly reckoned up, as a parson. It was the merest passing shade upon Townley's face, but Ernest had felt it. Townley said a few words of common form to Ernest about his profession as being what he thought would be the most likely to interest him, and Ernest, still confused and shy, gave him, for lack of something better to say, his threepenny bit about poor people being so very nice. Townley took this for what it was worth and nodded assent, whereon Ernest imprudently went further and said, don't you like poor people very much yourself? Townley gave his face a comical but good-natured screw, and said quietly, but slowly and decidedly, No, 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 and escaped. It was all over with Ernest from that moment. As usual, he did not know it, but he had entered nonetheless upon another reaction. Townley had just taken Ernest's threepenny bit into his hands, looked at it, and returned it to him as a bad one. Why did he see in a moment that it was a bad one now, 
though he had been unable to see it when he had taken it from Pryor. Of course some poor people were very nice, and always would be so. But as though scales had fallen suddenly from his eyes, he saw that no one was nicer for being poor, and that between the upper and lower classes there was a gulf which amounted practically to an impassable barrier. That evening he reflected a good deal. If Townley was right, and Ernest felt that the no had applied not to the remark about poor people only, but to the whole scheme and scope of his own recently adopted ideas, he and Pryor must surely be on the wrong track. Townley had not argued with him. He had said one word only, and that one of the shortest in the language. But Ernest was in a fit state for inoculation, and the minute particle of virus set about working immediately. Which did he now think was most likely to have taken the juster view of life and things, and whom would it be best to imitate, Townley or Pryor? His heart returned an answer to itself without a moment's hesitation. The faces of men like Townley were open and kindly. They looked as if at ease themselves, and as though they would set all who had to do with them at ease as far as might be. The faces of Pryor and his friends were not like this. Why had he felt tacitly rebuked as soon as he had met Townley? Was he not a Christian? Certainly. He believed in the Church of England as a matter of course. Then how could he be himself wrong in trying to act up to the faith that he and Townley held in common? He was trying to lead a quiet, unobtrusive life of self-devotion, whereas Townley was not, so far as he could see, trying to do anything of the kind. He was only trying to get on comfortably in the world, and to look and be as nice as possible. And he was nice, and Ernest knew that such men as himself and Pryor were not nice, and his old dejection came over him. Then came an even worse reflection. How, if he had fallen among material thieves as well as spiritual ones? He knew very little of how his money was going on. He had put it all now into Pryor's hands, and though Pryor gave him cash to spend whenever he wanted it, he seemed impatient of being questioned as to what was being done with the principal. It was part of the understanding, he said, that that was to be left to him, and Ernest had better stick to this, or he, Pryor, would throw up the College of Spiritual Pathology altogether. And so Ernest was cowed into acquiescence, or cajoled, according to the humor in which Pryor saw him to be. Ernest thought that further questions would look as if he doubted Pryor's word, and also that he had gone too far to be able to recede in decency or honor. This, however, he felt was riding out to meet trouble unnecessarily. Pryor had been a little impatient, but he was a gentleman and an admirable man of business, so his money would doubtless come back to him all right some day. Ernest comforted himself as regards this last source of anxiety, but as regards the other, he began to feel as though, if he was to be saved, a good Samaritan must hurry up from somewhere. He knew not whence.
Chapter 58 Next day he felt stronger again. He had been listening to the voice of the evil one on the night before, and would parley no more with such thoughts. He had chosen his profession, and his duty was to persevere with it. If he was unhappy, it was probably because he was not giving up all for Christ. Let him see whether he could not do more than he was doing now, and then perhaps a light would be shed upon his path. It was all very well to have made the discovery that he didn't much like poor people, but he had got to put up with them, for it was among them that his work must lie. Such men as Townley were very kind and considerate, but he knew well enough it was only on condition that he did not preach to them. He could manage the poor better, and let Pryor sneer as he liked. He was resolved to go more among them, and try the effect of bringing Christ to them if they would not come and seek Christ of themselves. He would begin with his own house. Who then should he take first? Surely he could not do better than begin with the tailor who lived immediately over his head. This would be desirable, not only because he was the one who seemed to stand most in need of conversion, but also because, if he were once converted, he would no longer beat his wife at two o'clock in the morning, and the house would be much pleasanter in consequence. He would therefore go upstairs at once and have a quiet talk with this man. Before doing so, he thought it would be well if he were to draw up something like a plan of a campaign. He therefore reflected over some pretty conversations which would do very nicely if Mr. Holt would be kind enough to make the answers proposed for him in their proper places. But the man was a great hulking fellow, of a savage temper, and Ernest was forced to admit that unforeseen developments might arise to disconcert him. They say it takes nine tailors to make a man, but Ernest felt that it would take at least nine Ernests to make her Mr. Holt. How if, as soon as Ernest came in, the tailor would have become violent and abusive? What could he do? Mr. Holt was in his own lodgings, and had a right to be undisturbed. A legal right, yes, but had he a moral right? Ernest thought not, considering his mode of life. But put this on one side. If the man were to be violent, what should he do? Paul had fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. That must indeed have been awful. But perhaps they were not very wild wild beasts. A rabbit and a canary are wild beasts. But formidable or not, as wild beasts go, they would nevertheless stand no chance against St. Paul, for he was inspired. The miracle would have been if the wild beasts escaped not that St. Paul should have done so. But however all this might be, Ernest felt that he dared not begin to convert Mr. Holt by fighting him. Why, when he had heard Mrs. Holt screaming murder, he had cowered under the bedclothes and waited, expecting to hear the blood dripping through the ceiling on to his own floor. His imagination translated every sound into a pat, 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 and once or twice he thought he had felt it dropping on to his counterpane, but he had never gone upstairs to try and rescue poor Mrs. Holt. Happily, it proved the next morning that Mrs. Holt was in her usual health. 
Ernest was in despair about hitting on any good way of opening up spiritual communication with his neighbor, when it occurred to him that he had better perhaps begin by going upstairs and knocking very gently at Mr. Holt's door. He would then resign himself to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and act as the occasion, which I suppose was another name for the Holy Spirit, suggested. Triply armed with this reflection, he mounted the stairs quite jauntily, and was about to knock when he heard Holt's voice inside swearing savagely at his wife. This made him pause to think whether after all the moment was an auspicious one, and while he was thus pausing, Mr. Holt, who had heard that someone was on the stairs, opened the door and put his head out. When he saw Ernest, he made an unpleasant, not to say offensive, movement, which might or might not have been directed at Ernest, and looked altogether so ugly, that my hero had an instantaneous and unequivocal revelation from the Holy Spirit, to the effect that he should continue his journey upstairs at once, as though he had never intended arresting at Mr. Holt's room, and begin by converting Mr. and Mrs. Baxter, the Methodist in the top-floor front. So this is what he did. These good people received him with open arms, and were quite ready to talk. He was beginning to convert them from Methodism to the Church of England, when all at once he found himself embarrassed by discovering that he did not know what he was to convert them from. He knew the Church of England, or thought he did, but he knew nothing of Methodism beyond its name. When he found that, according to Mr. Baxter, the Wesleyans had a vigorous system of church discipline, which worked admirably in practice, it appeared to him that John Wesley had anticipated the spiritual engine which he and Pryor were preparing, and when he left the room he was aware that he had caught more of a spiritual tartar than he had expected. But he must certainly explain to Pryor that the Wesleyans had a system of church discipline. This was very important. Mr. Baxter advised Ernest on no account to meddle with Mr. Holt, and Ernest was much relieved at the advice. If an opportunity arose of touching the man's heart, he would take it. He would pat the children on the head when he saw them on the stairs, and ingratiate himself with them as far as he dared. They were sturdy youngsters, and Ernest was afraid even of them, for they were ready with their tongues, and knew much for their ages. Ernest felt that it would indeed be almost better for him that a millstone should be hanged about his neck, and he be cast into the sea, than that he should offend one of the little hults. However, he would try not to offend them. Perhaps an occasional penny or two might square them. This was as much as he could do, for he saw that the attempt to be instant out of season as well as in season would, St. Paul's injunction notwithstanding, end in failure. Mrs. Baxter gave a very bad account of Miss Emily Snow, who lodged in the second floor back next to Mr. Holt. Her story was quite different from that of Mrs. Jupp, the landlady. She would doubtless be only too glad to receive Ernest's ministrations, or those of any other gentleman, but she was no governess. She was in the ballet at Drury Lane, and besides this, she was a very bad young woman, 
and if Mrs. Baxter was landlady, would not be allowed to stay in the house a single hour. Not she, indeed. Miss Maitland in the next room to Mrs. Baxter's own was a quiet and respectable young woman to all appearance. Mrs. Baxter had never known of any goings-on in that quarter. But, bless you, still waters run deep, and these girls were all alike, one as bad as the other. She was out at all kinds of hours, and when you knew that, you knew all. Ernest did not pay much heed to these aspersions of Mrs. Baxter's. Mrs. Jupp had got round the great number of his many blind sides, and had warned him not to believe Mrs. Baxter, whose lip, she said, was something awful. Ernest had heard that women were always jealous of one another, and certainly these young women were more attractive than Mrs. Baxter was, so jealousy was probably at the bottom of it. If they were maligned, there could be no objection to his making their acquaintance. If not maligned, then they had all the more need of his ministrations. He would reclaim them at once. He told Mrs. Jupp of his intention. Mrs. Jupp at first tried to dissuade him, but seeing him resolute, suggested that she should herself see Miss Snow first, so as to prepare her and prevent her from being alarmed by his visit. She was not home now, but in the course of the next day it should be arranged. In the meantime, he had better try Mr. Shaw, the tinker in the front kitchen. Mrs. Baxter had told Ernest that Mr. Shaw was from the North Country, and an avowed free thinker. He would probably, she said, rather like a visit, but she did not think Ernest would stand much chance of making a convert of him. End of chapter 58 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman